Welcome to the Rise and Resilience of Populism in Eastern Europe. I'm Tsveta Petrova, lecturer in the Political Science Department at Columbia University. With this interview series, we seek to popularize academic research on contemporary European populism. Over the past decade, a number of European populist parties have become increasingly competitive in key votes. And in Eastern Europe, some of these parties have not only come to power, but remained in office in consecutive elections. So with the interviews for this series, we seek to interrogate some of the main drivers and impacts of populist mobilization in Eastern Europe. This series is hosted by the European Institute at Columbia and made possible with the support of the Erasmus Plus program of the European Union. The European Commission's support for this series, however, does not constitute an endorsement of its contents, which reflect the views of the interviewer and interviewee alone. Today, I'll be interviewing Professor Mitchell Orenstein, a leading scholar of the political economy and international affairs of Central and Eastern Europe. He's a professor and chair of Russian and East European Studies at University of Pennsylvania and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. My favorite books of his include Out of the Red, Building Capitalism and Democracy in Post-Communist Europe, Privatizing Pensions, The Transnational Campaign for Social Security Reform, Roma in an Expanding Europe, Breaking the Poverty Cycle, and most recently, The Lands in Between, Russia versus the West and the New Politics of Hybrid War. Good day, Professor Orenstein. How are you? Hi, great. Um, thank you for inviting me, uh, Sveta. And um, it's wonderful to be here with the podcast. So before we discuss your research on populism in Eastern Europe, let's start with your definition of the phenomenon. Populism remains a much contested concept. The, the scholars that have, you know, kind of um, been the most prominent in defining populism have actually reached for a very minimal definition of this term. And this in Kasmuda, I think, um, who's at University of Georgia was the, uh, the one who really defined populism is a thin centered ideology, like there's not that much to it, basically. What there is, it, populism posits a world in which there's an oppressive elite, you know, kind of at the top. And then there's the downtrodden people and the people therefore need to revolt against the elite. And that's really it. Um, and that can be deployed as a thought in um, many different circumstances. Muda points out that populism can be combined with both left ideologies and right ideologies, with nationalist ideologies and with working class ideologies. Uh, and can be connected in different ways. Uh, many mainstream politicians use populist appeals. Um, but I think um, more specifically when we're talking about populism, usually in Europe today, we're talking about right-wing authoritarian nationalist populism. Although there are some instances of left-wing populism as well in Greece and in Spain. Um, but for the most part, the concerns are really not about populism at all. They're really about a, a, a rise of authoritarian right-wing nationalism, xenophobia. And, and, and you see this primarily driven by economic competition with the cultural um, dimension being secondary. For me, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that, um, you know, you can, I, I think they do go hand in hand to some degree. So, so globalization as a broader phenomenon or transition as a broader phenomenon had cultural and political and economic elements together. 
Um, and but I, I do think that the economic is more primary. I think that that had people not been sort of sold out um, from their socialist values and uh, you know kind of given a very mean world in which some succeeded and a lot of people were left behind. I think that um, it would have the liberal project overall would have gone down a lot better. And what factors do you see as driving the rise of this populist movement in Europe and specifically in Eastern Europe? It's a it's a great question. You could say like the $64,000 question right now in the study of populism. Why did this happen? Well, in part, it's because of economic policies over the last 40 years, neoliberal uh, or liberal or free market economic policies that have been enacted throughout Europe since Reagan and Thatcher, since the 1980s, have had the effect of bestowing enormous benefits on the top 1%, bringing along another, say, 20, 25% of the population, but leaving behind the median voter, leaving behind poor people, um, and where there's anemic or, or non-existent wage growth, uh, people can't find jobs, people can't, you know, reproduce uh, in family structures. And so, um, so I think after a certain amount of time, and especially after the global financial crisis of 2008, people got sick of, of the neoliberal approach to economic policy and began to look around for some alternatives. And populists were the first to, to recommend a, a reasonable alternative, I think, to neoliberalism, which was more nationalistic and authoritarian state developmentalism. <clears throat> that meant using state institutions to prop up the economy, to build a, a fairer economy or a more nationalistic economy. Um, but I think there's another, there's another reason um, that, uh, that populists have grown in importance. And that is also because of um, the ethnic national xenophobic side of sort of a reaction to globalization. So populism overall is probably a reaction to liberal internationalism. It's, it's a reaction to liberal economics, as I mentioned. It's a reaction to liberal politics. It's anti-democratic. It's also a reaction to liberal cultural values like gay rights or women's rights. And so, uh, so one can't also ignore the fact that populism is a reaction maybe to increased immigration in many countries or to uh, fear of the other or to a sense that um, the nation state is losing its sovereignty in the face of global threats. Um, so there's, uh, or global interconnectedness. So I, I think it's like a kind of overall reaction to liberalism across multiple dimensions and to um, globalization. How transformative has nationalist populism been? How deep, how profound is the change? Is it at the level of parties and or, or even party systems? Is it at the level of political economy of individual countries and sort of experimentation with uh, what sometimes is called economic heterodoxy? Or is it even um, a, a transformation of the political regimes uh, in the region? Well, I think, I think in some countries it's been pretty transformative, right? I think in Hungary and Poland, arguably, it's been fairly transformative. And I guess the way I would see it is at the level of the party system, right? So in Hungary, you have two major parties. One is far right, and the other is pretty far right. 
And then you have a third party, I think would be the left, you know, party, which had traditionally been one of the top two parties. And in Poland too, I mean, the, the, the uh, axis of competition is between a right liberal party, right? And a far right illiberal party, right? So I think they've changed the um, axis of competition. And what's interesting is it's primarily at the expense of the left. Mm. So the populace, and that's why I believe in this economic argumentation that I've been making, the idea that this is a reaction to the policies of 89, because the left in 1989 and after in these, particularly in Hungary and Poland, um, sold out their traditional left constituencies and went whole hog for neoliberalism and, in, and also for pro-European integration. Mm -hmm. I think that the reason they did that was because, well, one paper suggested that they wanted to prove that they were like legitimate democratic parties that could compete, you know, they weren't any more communists. But I think more importantly, um, they probably believed that joining the European Union would be a, an important way over the long term to neutralize um, the nationalist xenophobic populist strains in politics in their own countries, right? Mm -hmm. Because you couldn't, you, you, if you, once you joined Europe, that was just setting you on a direction for the West mm -hmm. and all those older traditions would have to just sort of put up with it somehow, get on, get on the bandwagon. Um, and as a result though, they, they were seen by their own constituents as having been sellouts. And essentially what the populist parties I believe have done very effectively is to win the support of average people who are voting on pocketbook issues and are just looking to see which party is going to actually support me. Mm -hmm. And where the social democratic parties were seen as having abandoned them, um, the populist parties sort of picked up that mantle of um, social democratic, traditional social democratic economic policies or socialist economic policies and have run with that and therefore gained um, the kind of prominence that used to. So whereas you used to have a competition between the conservative right and the sort of social democratic left, now you have a competition between the highly liberal right and the highly you know, socialist slash populist uh, right. How unique is Eastern Europe in its experimentation with nationalist populism and in this particular rejection of neoliberalism? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question too. I would say that um, in some ways it's not that unique, right? In the sense that in, in many ways you can see East European politics is becoming very similar to West European politics. However, East Europe is a little distinctive in that um, it was communist before 1989. It had a totally different set of historical experiences um, in the 20th century. Uh, and the liberalism was, uh, was imposed much more suddenly and much more extremely in particular with uh, regard to the economic uh, liberalism. So post-communist countries went from being the least liberal countries in Europe and probably in the world um, to becoming some of the most liberal in a space of uh, 20, 30 years. And that um, may have uh, induced more dislocation, more economic dislocation, more despair, more disregard for liberalism. Um, it wasn't as deeply rooted uh, perhaps, but in any case, um, 
I think that's what that helps to explain why Hungary and Poland are now leaders, European leaders in the area of populism. Um, and you're not seeing that trend quite so, takes quite so much hold in, in uh, West Europe as suddenly as it did in East Europe. Um, these these are countries that suddenly liberalized and now they're having a reaction to that. Mm. So you see this exposure and adoption of neoliberalism is helping us to explain variation within Eastern Europe, but also between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, given mm -hmm. the distinctive place of the region within these globalized economic chains. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, and I think we can add to that, that the 2008 crisis that was um, really a turning point for, for populism, populism really grew and took off after the 2008 financial crisis, which downgraded people's perceptions of neoliberalism and of the value of liberal economic policies um, and uh, really upgraded sort of concerns with the global model and whether the system was working right for them. And, and East Europe was more affected than other regions by the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. so, um, so West Europe, of course, was the epicenter of 2008 was really the United States. Most of the developing world, by the way, got over that crisis very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but East Europe, it hit really, really hard, in part because it was dependent on Western capital. And, and secondly, because it then was also hit by the Eurozone crisis, which came after the global financial crisis. So it suffered kind of um, a similar level to the European Union, except worse, and, um, and then was held behind uh, compared to other developing countries. Hmm. Um, so you talk about 2008 as an inflection point, if it's an inflection point for elites or for the population? Mm. Yeah, I think it's probably both. I think it was widespread, um, this rejection um, or this desire to find new alternatives. So for a lot of elites, um, if you were a liberal elite, you know, I don't think any of those people gave up on neoliberalism, honestly. I mean, I speak to a lot of European liberals all the time, and, and none of them have, have changed their mind at all, as far as I can see, about the benefits of liberalism. I think what it did to elites is it made it possible for alternative groups, any party after 2008 could say, I don't like the Western liberal consensus in economics. We don't appreciate it. We don't think this is actually a good way to go, and, and we're going to do things differently. And they wouldn't get punished by the markets. Um, you know, the populists, the reason why they defected from neoliberalism is because they never believed it in the first place. And they had been going along with um, neoliberal economics because they knew from experience that if they didn't, they wouldn't really get into power. And if they did, they would get punished by markets. Um, who, as soon as they said, oh, we're not going to be part of the Eurozone or, oh, we want to have a more, a different monetary policy, they would get hammered, right? And so they had learned that. And then after 2008, it became possible for elites to defect. Um, for the people, I think that they were also very, very badly affected in 2008. And a lot of the certainties that they'd been sold were seemingly wrong, right? So um, throughout the post-communist transitions, there have always been a significant minority of people who were dissatisfied with liberal economics and dissatisfied with the economy. Um, but what happened in, in after 2008 is a lot of the people who benefited from it also became dissatisfied. Um, they'd been willing to go along before, but these were people, for instance, who had bought houses with mortgages 
that were lent in Swiss francs, for instance, which offered a lower interest rate at the time. But when the financial crisis happened, the East European currencies devalued um, by 10 or 20%. And all of a sudden their mortgage payments ballooned by 10 or 20%. A lot of people um, were unable to uh, pay the loans. Um, they defaulted on their mortgages, you know, and probably in some cases went through difficult times, either losing their homes or um, staying in their homes, but with more inflated, um, you know, or uncertain economic situations. And honestly, I think it left a lot of middle classes in a lot of countries thinking, what did all this get us, right? Mm -hmm. So from a, a consumer perspective, if you were a middle-class person in East Europe, um, you experienced the years coming up to 2008 as ones of great growth. Probably your wages were going up. Probably you could borrow now. People didn't have credit cards under communism. So now you had a credit card, you had a car loan, you could get a mortgage loan, you could buy a house. But once the, um, the crisis hit, all that became unaffordable. People sort of looked around and said, well, what did I get from all this? I don't have a job. I have this huge mortgage I can't pay. I have a car loan I can't pay. I have a credit card I can't pay, right? So was I sold just a bunch of dreams, right? Was there any substance to this economic policy? And so it, it was a very widespread phenomenon, which I think also led a lot of people just naturally to question what was going on. And you could hear people saying things like, well, we thought everything was fine before, but obviously it wasn't. And, um, and then you had populist elites marching vigorously in the other direction and saying, well, we don't, this was all just a big sham. We shouldn't have done it anyway. You know, let's do something different. And I think a lot of, and, and the other thing I think it's important to realize about populism is that the growth of populism, um, it wasn't like they sprung out of nowhere, right? A lot of these populist parties, I'm thinking in Poland in particular, uh, or in Hungary, they had existed before, they just hadn't had a majority of the population. The only real difference that occurred, and this is probably true in the US too, is that there was a swing vote somewhere in the middle of people who never would have voted for these populists before, but after the crisis, they thought they were okay to vote for. And that was only uh, five, 10% of the population that changed its mind about populism. And that accounts for um, this. And so I think in a lot of ways in Poland today, when you look at Polish party politics, which are very closely divided in a way, in the last, um, I believe, was it presidential election, the, um, the division between the uh, populists and the liberals was not very great. I think in a lot of ways, people are voting against liberalism, mm -hmm. <laughs> not for populism, right? Mm -hmm. They just, for a lot of Poles, and I think a lot of other Europeans, it's not that they love the populists. In fact, they probably don't like a lot of things that they do, but they're too afraid to vote for the liberals because they don't want to have their own economic situation uh, messed up uh, because now the populists have instituted new social benefits, which people depend on. Um, they don't want to go towards austerity. Mm -hmm. um, the populists are proved that those programs can work and can, you know, help the economy. So they, they're just concerned, I think, naturally, you know, about going back to a kind of set of policies that doesn't appear to have really delivered um, the high growth that it was, it was meant to deliver. Mm -hmm. um, 
you talked just now in a way about the legacies of the transition period, the post-transition mm -hmm. period. And earlier you referred to the distinctive experience of the region um, under communist rule. To what extent have the legacies of communism contributed to the rise of nationalist populism? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really complex, it's a really complex question. <laughs> and it's, it's I, I don't know if I have a great answer to it, but I'll, I'll give you some answers to it. One is that, um, that the communist period for sure left a legacy in the region of people having very high expectations, socialist or social expectations of what the state should do. So mm -hmm. the idea that the, the populists are playing into this idea that comes from it hold over from the socialist time, which is that the state should do more to help you out, right? So if you ask people, for instance, should the state guarantee a job? Majorities in most Central and East European countries believe that the state should guarantee everyone a job. In, in a number of countries, people also think that, or not majorities, but significant minorities think that the top incomes should be limited, which was a policy under communism. So people have this um, sort of sense that the economy should be working for them and that the government is the way to make that happen, that the government should be kind of in, more in control of the economy. And, um, and I think they do play into that. On the other hand, the um, populist party, populist right parties are very anti-communist. And uh, they do a lot of things that are, they see as reacting to communism. Mm -hmm. um, part of this reaction of populist right parties is they hated rule from Moscow and they hated communism, mm -hmm. but they also see rule from Brussels as being basically the same, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So they see mm -hmm. that um, their hatred of communism is sort of, um, slipped over to hatred of the European Union, because today the European Union or, or Germany, the German empire is sort of seen as, uh, or the American empire is seen as a kind of threat in the same way that Moscow was a threat in the past. How much is this nationalist populism just the rejection of neoliberalism and how much is it a hedging between Eastern and Western models of economic and political development? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. I mean, I think it's um, I think the ultimate point is more towards gaining uh, sovereignty, gaining room for maneuver in economic policy and in other areas, right? So they want to have an opportunity to say no, right? Mm -hmm. And the experience of joining the EU and joining the West has been being forced to say yes to everything. Right. Mm -hmm. You have to do your economy this way. You have to run your democracy this way. You have to accept immigrants this way. You have to share liberal values. And they don't necessarily share all these values. Right. And so um, they want to have uh, an opportunity to do their own thing to basically that's how they see sovereignty. Sovereignty is the opportunity to say no. And um, and I think that's uh, that's real. And and one way you achieve that is by bringing in um, balancing powers, right? So Hungary is trying to balance um, China against Europe, balance Russia against Europe, right? Similarly in Serbia, um, you know, and sort of tell the EU, look, you know, okay, we're members of the EU, you know, we rely on the EU for investment, but you're not the only show in town. You know, we actually do have other choices. If we want investment, we can also go to China, right? 
um, if we, you know, we could ally with Russia to become a hub of its gas network, for instance, right? So, um, so I do think a lot of it is about just having some independence in in policy, and um, and and part of that is just to show the people, you know, just show their supporters that, yay, we're independent. That's a, a point of pride, nationalism. Part of it is real. I think that um, they feel like they can actually gain advantages this way. Mm -hmm. um, that will help their country because ironically, the more you say no to Europe, the more money they want to give you apparently, you know, and similarly probably to, you know, so I think it just ends up being very lucrative mm -hmm. to be the squeaky wheel. The economic data don't show that. The economic data show that foreign investments continue to flow into these countries, that they're doing extremely well economically right now. Um, they haven't had any problems from more generous social policies. They haven't had any problems from their more dictatorial governments, you know, from an economic standpoint. Um, and so, you know, I think they've demonstrated that you can have a, a different kind of economic policy. Now, people differ. One of the interesting academic debates right now about populism is how much have they strayed mm. from the liberal agenda. And I'm on the side, obviously, saying, well, they've strayed pretty considerably. I mean, when you start with a lot more state intervention and uh, in the economy and attempts to kind of build um, national champions that are going to compete in markets in foreign markets and uh, restrict your uh, your the investment of foreign entities into your own country. I mean, that's those are departures, no doubt, from neoliberalism. But other people point out, well, they still are broadly kind of you know pursuing liberal market-oriented policies, and they could pose you know a bunch of different examples of that. But um, I think that um, I think that so some of it is sort of symbolic, right? Some mm -hmm. of it is just about seeming to be independent, and but I think it has a real aspect to it. Personally, I think they are marking a different way of doing economic policy that's more nationalistic. And I think, frankly, they're not alone. I think that there's been a general breakdown around the world of the neoliberal approach to economic policy that you see even in the United States. So I would say both under President Trump and under President Biden, we're seeing a much more statist interventionist kind of version of economic developmentalism. And that's uh, something that a trend that the populists have really, um, you know, put their shoulder into and are pushing forward. So returning um, to the competition of East and West, um, you talked about the continuing flow of, of Western investment into mm -hmm. the region. And so I'm wondering to what extent has that, as well as the significant amounts of EU aid to those states, propped up, stabilized populism in Central Europe? Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think to some extent, yes, right? That uh, the, they certainly haven't been punished <laughs> in that way, right? So in other words, liberalism won't stand up for the political values. Mm -hmm. Right, they'll stand up for the economic values, their mm -hmm. economic principles, but they don't stand up very well for the political values. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. and um, so as a result, a lot of people are frustrated. Well, why doesn't the EU stop, you know, giving money to these countries? You know, mm -hmm. why don't Western investors realize they're anti-democratic and, which they are, and and stop giving them money? Um, and the answer is because they're more driven by economic. You know, economic liberalism is overtaken 
political liberalism is the dominant force within liberalism, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so these things are not happening uh, the way people think they should. Um, you know, if they're subsidizing, I mean, I guess the, to, to my mind, the, the answer is they're not unsubsidizing them. So you could say that really it's not a question of subsidization. It's not like people are going out of their way to subsidize them. It's really a question that for investors, it really doesn't matter if you're democratic or undemocratic. I mean, if you look around the world and you, you look at where people are investing money and, you know, these big corporations are investing money, obviously they don't have any, they don't give a hoot about like what kind of political system you have because they're investing in China, they're investing in all sorts of places around the world that have bad governments. And so Hungary is like hardly the worst. Um, I would just say it's more that um, it's simply political criteria or simply not a, not a matter of concern for investors in general in the West. I mean, that's the amoral economism of Western liberalism, right? And um, that people are reacting to in part. So, um, so yeah, I, don't, I, I guess that, that yes, it is true. It is true and it's not true. It's true that that money does now subsidize the nationalists or the illiberals, but it, it wouldn't, it's not like it would go away if some other better government came into to play. <laughs> um, it's just that businesses do business with everybody and they don't mind about that. Hmm. On the other side, to create a leverage um, against the West, many of these nationalist populist governments have sought investments from Russia, from China. What kinds of investments are those? Party support, business investment, official aid, um, and what are the strings that have been attached to investment from the East? What are some of the risks that such investment carries to the economy, to the uh, political development of the Eastern European countries? Well, a couple points first. One is that Western investment most likely is is much larger still than Eastern investment, mm -hmm. right? Um, and also a lot because it hasn't, we haven't had as much experience with it. We don't know quite as much about it, right? Mm. Um, when I talk about Russian, let's just talk about Russian investment in Hungary. Russian investment typically in the Central and East Europe region is heavily focused on energy mm -hmm. because energy is Russia's major export not only oil and gas, but also nuclear mm -hmm. uh, and also coal, many, many aspects of energy. Uh, that's really Russia's main business. So it's no surprise that it's in that sphere. Um, and Russia uh, and that sphere, you know, tends to be a sphere in which government to government contacts are very important, right? Um, it's big money with big fixed investments like a pipeline. Um, there requires a lot of guarantees that are inevitably sort of government level guarantees and you're working with state energy companies and that kind of thing. So um, it gets corrupt pretty fast also, right? Because it's kind of, um, you know, the nature of it. And that probably comes with, so we think, a slush fund, like, right? you know, for the um, prime minister himself, right? Essentially, which of course we don't know much about. It's just rumored. But uh, there's that. And then of course there's other things that are rumored like for instance, um, Hungary acting as what Dan Kelman and I call a Trojan horse within mm. the European Union where mm. essentially Hungary uh, will take 
pro-Russian positions that are unpopular within the European councils and prevent decisions from being made or try to influence them. Um, and also there's a lot of um, spy interactions going on. Um, a lot of uh, allegations that coming from the former Hungarian intelligence that Hungary is, um, is giving away its passports to Russian intelligence operatives, making it possible for them to go all throughout the EU, um, hosting a kind of um, very questionable Russian university that appears to be a spy mm -hmm. university in Budapest, you know. So it, it, the, the investments are kind of, um, that Russia makes tend to be part because of its nature, because of the energy factor and the government to government factor. And then the fact that so much of Russian diplomacy is, is kind of covert spying um, that, um, you know, it's, its whole relationship is uh, much more state dominated and um, much more trying to sort of pull Hungary in a certain direction uh, in its broader geopolitics. Whereas, um, you know, the West has other techniques of doing that. You join the EU, it's, it tends to be a little bit more observable. China, um, it, it's, its investments have been focused in trade. Um, so it's been focused on this Belt and Road Initiative, mm -hmm. which is intending to build trade and transport links primarily. Um, so ports, uh, railroads that go to ports, uh, basically creating a way for, with Chinese ownership, a way for Chinese goods to uh, enter into Europe and sort of dominate certain markets with the compliance of the governments, um, normally choosing weaker governments that are uh, easier to influence, um, such as Serbia, for instance, um, uh, or Hungary. We shouldn't make too much of these investments. Like it's not the main thing that's going on in, in Hungary. But what it does do is it gives an opportunity um, for Hungary to kind of, on the one hand, signal that it has options. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you didn't you didn't fund our infrastructure, so now we're getting Chinese infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But also to sort of blackmail the West mm -hmm. in a way into, or shame the West into sort of providing more funds for these countries, which is happening in the form of the Three Seas Initiative mm -hmm. um, and other ways, which. Um, can serve. So basically befriending the Chinese and the Russians can also bring you closer to the EU. Um, and it, one of the things that's been really hard to untangle about, about Orban is how has he become so close to Angela Merkel and so close to the German, um, you know, the uh, Christian Democratic Party. And the, the reason is partly because they're worried about him defecting, right? And so in a way, what he realized is that the more likely you are to defect, the more important you become to your allies, mm. ironically. Um, so uh, I think that's a game that small states in Europe have played forever. Um, it's always been there. So on that topic, here's my last question for you today. How do you think about the resilience of, of nationalist populism in Central and Eastern Europe? Um, what challenges to these governments and movements more broadly do you see ahead? I think that the world is going through a period in which there's a very clear dividing line in politics. And that is liberalism versus, you could say, illiberalism or illiberal populism, right? Um, on the side of liberalism, you know, 
many people around the world support democracy. They support freedoms, individual freedoms. They support organizational freedoms. They support enterprise freedoms. Um, and people were very, remained very attracted by a lot of aspects of liberalism. Mm. The downsides of liberalism, however, are that it has failed to present an economic model of society that actually works um, for a majority of people. It, it, it literally only works for about 30, 35% of people, even in the United States, who are doing well. Right? Their economic model has basically failed. On the populist side, um, you have um, a, an attraction. They're, they're, they're riding off an attraction to, um, to nationalism, to some sort of encompassing kind of we narrative on a national basis that people want to belong to something and they want to see their nation prosper and they want to feel like they're part of that and they want to be brought along. They want to have a, a vision of government in which people care about them that they end up being very ineffective at actually governing, hmm. right? So, you know, that came through in the U.S. very clearly with the coronavirus situation hmm. with Donald Trump is like, he was really hurt, I think, by the fact that he just, when, when faced with the coronavirus, he just wanted to blame China, use it to blame China and, and didn't want to actually do anything about it, you know? And, um, and I think, you know, that, Obviously, the populace in East Europe had a better situation for a while, but they've also been hit pretty hard recently. Um, mm. And then I think the corruption um, that's inherent in it, too, is that a lot of the way the populists, they have this uh, us versus them mentality. And so part of the way they organize the economy is through their own networks, party connected networks that they prefer for investments and for grants and programs, donations. And so they build these very corrupt um, national, you know, sort of capitalist groups that nobody likes. Um, and so I, I see both sides as having very substantial challenges and neither side in the current period being able to sort of dominate really, um, mm -hmm. because neither of them are very conscious or able to deal with their faults. Uh, I, I would like to think that liberals could put together a vision for, uh, you know, a better society Right, that actually just actually, even if it just supported the majority of people, that would be nice. I don't see that happening at all. And I don't see the the populists of sort of growing out of their basic problems, which is they're too corrupt and too incapable of governing to really um, to really manage some brilliant national revival. Hmm. Um, Professor Ornstein, thank you for joining me today. It's been really a fascinating conversation on nationalist populism in Central and Eastern Europe, and especially the international dimension um, to these movements. We look forward to your future work on this topic um, and your latest book, which is titled Taking Stock of Shock, Social Consequences of the 1989 Revolutions. It's a book that's co-authored with Kristen Gotzi. Well, thanks so much. Um, thanks for inviting me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. This was the rise and resilience of populism in Eastern Europe. Special thanks to our audience for listening. We hope you will tune in for our future interviews as well. For those and other events sponsored by the European Institute at Columbia, please visit the Institute's website at europe.columbia.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Columbia Europe. Thank you. <laughs>